You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be talking about Jack the Ripper. Hello, hello. Happy October. This is our first episode in October, so I wanted to give you a heads up on a little series I've concocted for the next four weeks. Um, So for the next four weeks, we're going to be discussing spooky and eerie mysteries. So some famous um, serial killers, um, like the one that I have planned for today. And we'll also have a few that are just like really creepy and bananas insane with how mysterious they are. And next week, we are even going to have our first guest host joining us. So I'm really excited. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You guys are just going to have to wait and see. Um, Also, um, as you know, if you are an Unsolved Mysteries junkie like me, then you know that the next six episodes are being released soon on October 15th. So starting the first week of November, we are going to start covering those cases. So do your homework and watch them if you feel so inclined, but if you don't want to watch them or you just like don't have the time, no worries, because I'm going to, of course, be covering the case and the episode step by step, so you don't have to. I'm just a visual person, so I like to have the characters in my head, um, so that's why I watch the actual episode, um, but you certainly don't have to. Even if you don't watch the episode, still come hang out with us. There have unfortunately not been any updates on the previous cases that we've discussed so far, Um, although I do wish that there were some. One day, guys. One day. I also wanted to make a correction from last week's episode, and this is another first. Not my first mistake, but just my first time correcting one of my mistakes. I'm sure I've made plenty of mistakes. Um, Last week, I told you that the kidnappers of little baby Charlie had requested a $25,000 ransom, but this was actually incorrect. They wanted a $50,000 ransom. So adjusted for inflation, that would have been about $660,000 today. Um, $25,000 is how much Lindy um, got from winning the Ortega Prize, which I think is probably what messed me up in the episode. So I'm sorry about that. But now I told you we're square. We're good. Yay. Um, So today's episode, I thought, I really thought that I knew everything there was to know about Jack the Ripper, but there are so many things that I discovered while researching for this episode, and I hope you all will learn something new today, even if you consider yourself a Jack the Ripper aficionado. For starters, I did not know the London newspapers didn't really refer to him as Jack the Ripper very much. They originally and some historians still refer to him as the White Chapel murderer. And you'll learn later on why this is the case, but so hold on to your pants. I'm going to get to it. But I also didn't know how short the killing spree had actually lasted. For some reason in my mind, I had assumed that it had been like a year-long thing, like at the very least, like maybe even more, but No, everything happened within the course of like just under or around three months, so like 90 days. The investigation is what has taken so many years, which I knew that the investigation had taken a long time, but for some reason in my mind, I just like thought that even killing people for like a year. 
Um, I also wanted to mention that while I wish I could provide backstories on the victims of today's episode, it just really isn't possible, which makes me super irritated because I really hate making an episode that focuses largely on the killer or the predator and less on the people that were preyed upon. But because of the time period, it was so long ago, and because of the low income of the victims, there just really isn't much known about them other than that they were sex workers who resided or worked in East End. Um, Unfortunately, like back then, people didn't have like cell phones that they could like just take selfies all the time. Um, So a lot of these women could not afford to have their picture taken. I guess it was like super expensive. Um, So a lot of these women, the only picture that was ever taken of them was at the morgue or like the mortuary when the ME was like looking at their body, which is just really sad to think about if you think and it makes me feel really guilty about all the selfies that I have on my phone I'm gonna go delete all of them this case is absolutely wild and so without much fluff beforehand I really just want to like delve right in today because if not we'd end up with like a four hour long episode so without further ado this is the case of the white chapel murderer also known as Jack the Ripper In autumn 1888, London was the largest capital city in the world. The east end of London was living in terror. A killer was stalking their streets, committing heinous crimes. This killer had claimed ground in the particularly impoverished district of Whitechapel, which was already London's outcast district rife with abject poverty. This killer didn't just snuff out life with a knife. He mutilated and disemboweled women. And that's my least favorite word, by the way. If you ever wanted to know, disemboweled, ugh, I hate it. Um, He removed their body parts. His crimes seemed to portray an abhorrence for the entire female gender, sex workers in particular. Before we talk more about the killer, I do think it's important to know more about the environment that he chose to terrorize. As I mentioned before, Whitechapel was the poorest of the poor. In fact, just one year previous to the start of these murders, a chairman for the London School Board had visited the schools in the area and reported that out of every 1,000 families living there, 871 were living in a one-room apartment with an average of nine people living in that one room. Whitechapel had the worst slums, the worst overcrowding, and the highest death rates of any industrialized area in the world. Living in Whitechapel was a daily battle for survival, and if the crime didn't get you, then the poor living conditions certainly would. The apartments had straw floors. There were horse droppings everywhere in the street, and if that doesn't gross you out enough, there was absolutely no sanitation. People were literally just throwing their sewage out of their windows or doors. The stench must have been absolutely terrible. And we all know that human waste is a breeding ground for bacteria and disease. People in London refer to the district of Whitechapel as the immigrant district. In the 1880s, London had experienced an influx of Jewish refugees fleeing persecution from Russia, Poland, and Romania. Author Paul Begg of the book The Definitive Jack the Ripper claims that Londoners didn't as much hate the Jews as a people. They just didn't appreciate the cultural differences in their lifestyle. 
which one may argue that seems like one and the same, but hey, that's just my two cents. Like, seems like a very politically correct way to say that they don't like them. So there was a lot of racial tension, a lot of anti-Semitism going on between the Jewish population and the Londoners during the 1880s. Londoners felt that the Jews were immoral in their lifestyle. They don't really get into specifics, so I don't really know what they're referring to. And that they accused Jewish immigrants of taking away English jobs and homes. In East End, there were roughly 233 common houses, which advertised to low-income people or families um, as basically a place to sleep every night. Uh, but these beds were rented, and they came with a price. Eight pence for a double bed, four pence for a single bed, and one tuppence to, hold on to your butts, lean up against a rope and sleep standing up. Uh... What? I think I'd rather keep my tuppence. But at the same time, London is known for being like super rainy and cold. So maybe a tuppence was worth getting out of the cold at least. I literally cannot imagine having to make that choice. Women in particular had few work opportunities that barely afforded them the cost of a bed or even food. So many women had to turn to prostitution in order to barely make any money. This was not a decision that the women made lightly. They did it because they had to in order to just barely survive. In 1888, there were about 1,200 sex workers working and living within the Whitechapel district. On the surface, Victorian London like seems very elegant and respectable. I know that's certainly how I envisioned it. Like I envisioned like Mr. Darcy and like all the high to do things, but like I don't know. That's just what I thought before researching for this case anyway. But underneath its romantic appeal lurked a feeling of extreme unease. In 1888, there was a social fear by the mid and upper classes that the lower class East Enders were planning a revolt against them. Because of this, East End became the scapegoat for all of the mid and upper classes anxieties. Then the Whitechapel murderer came along. People saw him as a physical representation of all of those fears and anxieties. It was a common worry at the time that if the murderer can cross the border of the poverty-stricken, immoral-laden area of Whitechapel into our communities, what else could creep its way on over and infect the rest of London? At 3.40 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, a man who identified himself as Charles Cross discovered a bundle laying on the ground on Bucks Row. At first, he thought it was a bit of tarp, maybe something that seemed free and it could be useful, so he decided to walk over and sort of check it out. But he claims that as he got closer to the bundle, he realized it wasn't a tarp at all. It was, in fact, a woman. As he processed what he was seeing, he heard footsteps coming up behind him. Startled, he saw another man approaching. This man was Robert Paul. Together, the two gathered the courage to take an even closer look. Charles Cross covered the bottom half of the woman's body to ensure her decency, as her skirt had been up over her waist. He also felt the woman's hands and said that they felt ice cold to him. Robert Paul searched for a pulse, but couldn't find one, but then Robert noticed her chest move slightly, 
I think she's alive, Robert proclaimed, but only barely. Robert turned to Charles and suggested they prop the woman up, but Charles Cross refused to touch her. Charles felt that they had already wasted enough of their time, and he was late for work anyway. Charles was sure that the woman was just a drunken sex worker who may have taken a beating from her employer or possibly even a client. He told Robert, let's be on our way, and if we happen to see a constable, we'll tell them what we've seen. So they did just that. They headed on their way together. What Robert hadn't noticed, what he couldn't have noticed because it was so dark when he bent over to check the woman's pulse, was that the woman's throat had been so savagely sliced and so maliciously cut that she had almost been decapitated. I mean, let's remember, it's 4 a.m. in 1888, probably super dark. I'm surprised they even noticed a bundle in the alleyway at all. About 10 minutes later, Constable John Neal did discover the body while on his rounds, and he's the one that raised the alarm, which begs the question, how many Englishmen did it take to do the right thing in London in 1888? Three. The answer is apparently three. Constable Neal sent the body to the morgue where Inspector Spratling announced that the woman had only been dead for maybe like a half an hour or so before she was found. He also made a startling discovery that somehow everyone had missed. The woman had been disemboweled, and at this precise moment, the Whitechapel murderer's reign of terror had officially begun. Officially, there are five murders considered to have been committed by the Whitechapel murderer. These women are referred to as the canonical five. There are two other murders that occurred before this one we just discussed that some people believe could have been the murderer attempting to perfect his craft, and I must agree with them as I certainly cannot believe that this first victim was the killer's first victim. However, many believe that the other two women were killed, um, like, by gang. They were like gang-related deaths. The woman was identified as Mary Ann Nichols, but she went by Polly. She was a 43-year-old sex worker who had earlier been kicked out of a common house because she couldn't afford to pay the four pence for a bed. As she walked out of the common house, she yelled over her shoulder to the owner, I'll get my DOS money soon enough. But that isn't what ended up happening for Polly. Of course, once news of the murder reached the public, it caused a genuine panic. Scotland Yard sent one of their most seasoned and beloved detectives, Frederick George Averline. He had many ties to the area as he had once been a constable there himself. The people of the area already knew him. They respected him. Detective Aberlein had a brilliant career. He had actually just been promoted to detective and he completely oversaw the investigation as he knew the area and the people therein so well. And he really ends up becoming one of the most integral people, like vital people in this case. Um, apparently, I'm like going off the script right now, so I'm going to be like making a bunch of errors, I'm sure. But apparently, like the way that West End streets and a lot of London streets were at that time, like it was kind of like a maze. Like you kind of like had to know where you were going or else you just keep going around in circles or you'd like get to a dead end. So a lot of like secret passageways that can get you from here to here and it just seemed really complicated it seemed like it's not the grid system let me tell you that polly nichols quickly became her case quickly became difficult to solve 
First and foremost, because there were no clues left behind, but also because this murder occurred in darkest London. Vice and violence were commonplace and everyone wanted to act as though they hadn't seen anything or heard anything for fear that they could be next. Although, despite how dangerous the area was, actual murders were not all that common in 1888. It was more like petty crime and like gang-related crime that they dealt with. In fact, in 1887, there had only been six murders the entire year. So when there were three murders in the case of like a month, you can see why everyone was freaking out a bit. Polly Nichols' murder really affected the way women conducted themselves in the East and the West Ends of London. Women refused to go out by themselves at night, and if they did have to go out for whatever reason, they carried guns and knives with them. I don't blame them. I do the same thing. Averline was in a race against time before the killer struck again, and they got a bit hopeful for a minute there because while speaking to local sex workers at the time, they came to know about a man known to the sex workers strictly as Leather Apron. Apparently, this entity, Leather Apron, had attempted to extort money from the from the sex workers by making like threats of violence against them against them and he oftentimes branded a knife out as he threatened them police believed leather apron was a man named john pizer but when the public became aware that there was a person of interest and pizer was the man that the police were looking for the citizens became an angry mob looking for him men would beat up other men that they only thought were Pizer, like they didn't even have like any confirmation. They were just like, hey, you look like Pizer. I'm going to beat you up. So as you can imagine, the real Pizer hightailed the heck out of there. He didn't want to be arrested or be killed by an angry mob. No way. Police were back at ground zero. Because of the chaos that Leather Apron and releasing John Pizer's name had caused, police decided to put the media at arm's length and refused to give them any hints on what they were working on going forward. The media was stunned by this perceived betrayal, and they began to secretly shadow detectives hoping to get some breadcrumbs. They would question people as soon as an offer an officer left someone's house, bribing the potential witnesses for any information. They would go ahead and get like officers drunk to see if they would spill any of their secrets. One reporter even went so far as dressing up as a woman to see if the murderer would attempt to kill him just so that he could get a story. But in my eyes, I'm like, yeah, but Jack the Ripper would have thought you were a woman. So he would have killed you. Not much of a story. That reporter was actually approached by an officer and asked if he was undercover because apparently like a lot of cops were undercover at that time. But the man replied, no, 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 I'm just a journalist. And he was promptly arrested and detained for two hours because he was dressed as a woman, which was considered like very immoral back then. <laughs> the reveal that the police were in search of a man referred to as Leather Apron had social consequences as well. As we know, racial tensions were high between the Londoners and the Jews, and leather aprons were commonly worn by many professions mainly held by Jewish tradesmen. So now, London was convinced that their murderer was for sure a Jewish man. On the 7th of September, Elizabeth Long saw Annie Chapman around 5.30 a.m. outside of 27 Hanbury Street. 
Elizabeth knew Annie as the two resided in the same common house, but Annie was not alone when Elizabeth saw her. She had been with a man, a man Elizabeth described as um, dark and swarthy. A little before 6 a.m., John Davis, an elderly neighbor, came downstairs to smoke a cigarette. He nonchalantly walked along an alleyway alongside of his building, and he encountered a terrible scene. John Davis ran as fast as he could. Keep in mind, he's an elderly man, so he ran as fast as he could into the street, and he was able to seek the assistance of two men passing by on their way to work. Come here, he pleaded with them. The man, the men followed. They saw Annie Chapman wedged between the steps and a fence. Annie's throat had been cut. Again, like Polly, she had been cut along the abdomen all the way to her breastbone. But this time, her body had been staged. And I'm not going to get into all the gory details because honestly, they make me feel sick. But basically, parts of her insides had been placed strategically on her shoulders and her kidneys and her womb had been removed. Hopefully you get the picture by that description because I'm not going to go into it any more than that. Um, And then in the corner of the courtyard, there was a freshly washed and neatly folded leather apron. Hmm. Basically, the staging, I think, was a taunt to police and also a way to get immense shock value by whoever found her. This killer, I think, got off not only from the thrill of the kill, But I also feel like he got a perverse pleasure from causing shock and revulsion within the community and the public at large. Death of Annie Chapman caused caused mobs to turn their anger toward anyone they thought could be the murderer. Because of the leather apron left at the scene and the skyrocketing rates of anti-Semitism at the time, innocent Jewish men were being harassed, threatened, and beaten by angry crowds demanding justice. However, it was later found uh, that the leather apron that was discovered at the scene was not left by the killer as a taunt at all. It actually belonged to a resident of the common house who had cleaned it before retiring to bed before he went to work the next morning. The leather apron was a red herring. But the knowledge came too late, and the mob mentality could not be subdued, even through the efforts of the police. The mobs of people were sure that the killer was a Jew, and no amount of reason could convince them otherwise. The mobs wanted justice, and they didn't care which man it was. They were determined to punish every Jewish man who lived or worked in East End. Okay, so a few vigilantes weren't all bad. Anxious to assist the police in any way that they could, a vigilance group was created. This vigilance community or committee included very successful local men who just wanted to help. They would write letters to the queen, to parliament. They would encourage people to talk to police because a lot of people didn't want to talk to police because they didn't want to be next. They didn't know who was behind it. If it was a gang, they didn't want the gang finding out that they had talked to the police. Uh, The group also organized neighborhood watch groups that assisted the police whenever they needed their help. On September 10th, John Pizer was found and arrested. Everyone was convinced that they had finally caught their killer. However, during during his interrogation, Pizer was able to provide an iron-clad alibi, and police were forced to acknowledge that Pizer was not their man, and they they let him go. 
They also held a press conference letting the public know that Pizer had not been involved in any way, that he had an ironclad alibi, and that everyone just needed to leave him alone. During the press conference, they also announced that they had reason to believe that the killer was able to remove organs with such precision that they now believed that the killer may have anatomical knowledge and possibly even medical skill. Okay, so what's the difference between anatomical knowledge versus medical skill? Some argued that he had both. Others claim that he only had anatomical knowledge the way that a hunter or a farmer or a slaughterman would know about, like, the human body based on, like, working with animals. Um, it's much different than um, someone being involved in the medical profession. However, one seasoned surgeon claimed that under similar circumstances, he himself would not have been able to make these organ removals that precisely and that quickly in the dark. So that surgeon was under the impression that the killer had surgical skill as opposed to anatomical knowledge. Um, some say that it wasn't either. Some say it wasn't anatomical knowledge and it wasn't medical skill. It was just plain dumb luck. On September 27th, John Lusk, the leader of the vigilante committee that I was talking about uh, earlier, received an eerie package and letter. The letter was written in red ink and was addressed from hell. The letter read, Dear boss, I keep hearing that police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they talk so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about the leather apron gave me the real fits. I am down on whores and shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over this last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send them to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so sharp and nice. I want to get to work right away, if I get a chance. Good luck, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind giving me the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got the writing off my hands. Cursed no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. The letter also included half of a human kidney, supposedly belonging to Annie Chapman. This letter wasn't released to the public until October 1st. Some, I'd go as far to say most historians do not believe that this letter was written by the murderer at all. Most believe that this was most likely written by a journalist um, trying to stir up buzz for a story. And others claim to know for a fact that this was later determined to be a prank performed by a medical student. This is why many English historians refuse to refer to the killer as Jack the Ripper, preferring to call him the Whitechapel murderer, which makes sense. We probably shouldn't refer to the murderer by a name that was most likely given to him by a practical joker medical student or a pesky journalist and not the murderer himself. Um, so that's why, like, if you're a purist uh, Whitechapel murderer historian, you don't really refer to him as Jack the Ripper. One thing that did stand out to me more than the gruesome nature of the letter, which I think I was just trying to black out, is the vernacular of the letter. It doesn't seem too far off from the way that we speak today. I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but it just isn't 
it doesn't really have anything to do with the crime or anything, but I just like noticed when I was reading it, I was like, oh, there's like not as many like hither there for old school a year ago. Like, I just was expecting that, but it just seemed kind of like a letter that I would write today pretending to be from that time period, but I like don't know what I'm doing. So it would just sound like that instead of like, oh, who's that guy that wrote, um, oh my gosh, who's that guy that wrote A Christmas Carol? Charles Dickens? I don't know. <laughs> I'm so not cultured. Don't blame me. Uh, I went to school in New York. Don't, don't judge me. <laughs> Police were being heavily criticized by their workings in the case. For starters, they hadn't offered any money for information regarding the killer, so the people of East End didn't feel as though their lives were being valued as much as their, like, West End Londoners, um, neighbors. But I honestly believe that the officers were doing the best that they could with the resources that they had at the time. Modern day officers, like police officers today, have reviewed the case and the work done and they can't think of anything that they would have or could have done differently without the forensic advancements that we have today. So the police at that time were doing their best. It's not like they were being lazy. It's not like they weren't using all their resources. They were using all of their resources, but it just wasn't enough. We have to remember that the Whitechapel murderer murdered people in dark, secluded areas, and the crime itself had never had any witnesses thus far anyway. He was able to quiet his victims as no one had ever heard anything. He left no clues or forensic evidence behind, nor did he have an accomplice who could turn on him. A solemn thought, if we really sit and think about it, is that these women, as we know, were sex workers. They most likely believed that this man was soliciting them for their various services, meaning these women more than likely chose these secluded spots themselves, unknowingly selecting their very own murder scenes. The killer didn't have to wait for his opportunity. His victims did it for him. On September 30th at 1 a.m., Louis Demschultz turned his cart and pony down Duffield Yard his pony became startled and jerked his head to the left. Confused, Lewis attempted to get his pony to move forward, but the animal adamantly refused. It was then Lewis noticed a dark shadow propped up against a building. Lewis got out of his cart to take a closer look, which we all know is bad news. <laughs> um, he took out a match and he lit it, but it was windy that night, so his match went out. He moved a few steps closer to the shadowy figure and lit another match. The match promptly went out again. Again, he moved a few steps closer and lit another match, which promptly went out. But it was in between these glimpses of light, Lewis's worst nightmare was actualized. Another victim of the Whitechapel murderer. The third victim was identified as Elizabeth Stride, a.k.a. Lucky Liz, to some historians, and that she was found with only her throat cut and no mutilations, although that doesn't seem all too lucky. Lucky to me would be, uh, I don't know, not murdered? Police surmise that the killer may have been spooked by the pony and cart abruptly turning onto the road, and perhaps it wasn't the shadow of Elizabeth's body that startled the horse, but the murderer himself jumping up and hiding into the shadows. While Elizabeth Stride is being discovered, Catherine Eddowes, a sex worker, was being released from jail. Good night, old cop, she was heard saying as she left the building. 
A little before 1.30 a.m., a group of men leaving a pub saw Catherine with a man. One of the men in the group commented to his friends that he wouldn't want to be a woman walking around the streets at night with a character like that out and about. Another man in the group glanced over at the two as he walked by and was able to get a good look at them. He noted that the man was about 25 to 30 years old, 5 foot 7, fair complexion, and a fair mustache. And I'm just going to like throw a little thing in here. My husband always wants to grow out his mustache and he's blonde. And I told him that blonde mustaches are probably like the creepiest thing since sliced bread. But apparently blonde mustaches are the creepiest thing since Jack the Ripper. The man was also of medium build and looked like he was perhaps a sailor. Although the group noted that the two seemed off, they weren't doing anything particularly suspicious or creepy, so they continued their journey home. At 1.45 a.m., a police constable was making his rounds. He had looked around Mitre Square only 15 minutes earlier, um, and he hadn't saw, seen anything suspicious. But now, at 1.45, only 15 minutes later... He saw a horrific sight in the center of the square, the body of Catherine Eddowes. Catherine's throat had been slit, she had been disemboweled, and her kidney had been removed. This time, her face had also been mutilated. The killer had cut off the tip of her nose, severed her ear, slashed her face, and cut V-shaped flaps underneath each eye. I can only assume that this escalation in violence occurred likely due to his previous victim's ritual being disrupted before he could finish it. But the killer in his haste of killing two people slipped up. And that's my favorite thing about murderers is that they always slip up and it always comes back to bite them in the butt. Maybe not now, but in the future. Perhaps unknowingly, he had murdered Catherine in London's financial district, which was another jurisdiction. So now two police jurisdictions were on the case, the city of London's police and Scotland Yard. At 2.55 a.m., a police constable found a piece of blood-soaked apron, a piece that had come from Catherine Eddowes' apron. The killer had apparently used it to wipe his hands and the murder weapon, the infamous knife. Above where the discarded apron was found was a message written in chalk on the wall. The message itself read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. But Jews was misspelled J-U-W-E-S. While some think that this message was written by the killer, it's hard to know for sure. There was a lot of anti-Semitism going on in the area, so it may have only been a coincidence. In fact, when the head of the London's financial district approached the scene, the other officers were about to photograph the message and the commissioner told them absolutely not and he promptly demanded that his officers erase the entire message. He was worried about the safety of Jewish men had this information been made public. What's interesting to know about the location of this bloodied apron and its message is that it seemed that after killing Catherine Eddowes, the killer was making his way towards his earlier victim, Elizabeth. We have to wonder why the killer would risk running into police by going into the ring of fire of police officers looking for him. Perhaps the killer lived in the area, and this is why he risked so much entering an area most likely swarming with cops because he just wanted to get home and sort of hunker down for the night. Early that same morning, a postcard was received, written in red ink and with handwriting similar to the first one. The postcard read, 
I was not codding, dear boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit and I couldn't finish straight off. Had not the time to get the ears for the police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back until I got to work again, Jack the Ripper. This makes me think that some of the historians are incorrect in their presumptions that the first letter was a prank from a journalist or medical student, because no one could have known about these murders because they hadn't even been in the paper yet, and this guy knew intimate details of the killing. In the following days of this double murder, madness ensued, obviously. A few days later, a man named Israel Schwartz came forward with an account that he felt may be useful to the police. Israel claimed that he turned down Burner Street and was walking behind another man who hadn't seemed to notice his presence. Up ahead, he noticed there there was a woman standing outside of a socialist club. The man that was walking in front of him approached the woman and words were exchanged and a violent altercation ensued. Um, Israel says that the man ended up throwing the woman to the ground. Israel believed it to be a lover's quarrel, so he promptly crossed the street to avoid it. Real chivalrous, Israel. Um, After learning about the deaths, he was able to later identify the woman he saw as Elizabeth Stride, and it's now commonly believed that Israel was was most likely walking behind the murderer himself, and he had in fact witnessed the third murder. Police felt defeated and humiliated. Masses swarmed the Mitre Square, hoping to catch a glimpse of the exact spot Catherine Eddowes had been found. Businesses overlooking the square were actually charging patrons a fee to use their shops to gaze upon the ghoulish crime scene. Vendors took advantage of the current developments. They set up markets to feed and, and drink, give drink to the spectators. The square had almost a carnival atmosphere as a result of the murders. Disgusting. I mean, I know that there weren't, there wasn't like television and all, but seriously, these people needed to like get a heart or like read a book instead of making the death of a woman such a spectacle. The public were not a fan of the police at this point. In fact, the following day, a ginormous banner was hung up at Mitre Square that read, Whitechapel murder, but where are the police? Unknown to the public, however, the police were secretly and rigorously exploring all options. They wanted to avoid public knowledge so that they could avoid public interference, which, granted by the way that these Londoners were behaving, I don't think that was such a bad idea of them to decide to do that. Police went door-to-door to to over 2,000 residents. They passed out 80,000 handbills, like pamphlets, that had sort of a see-something-say-something message about them. Over 75 butchers and slaughtermen were investigated. Some sailors were interviewed as well. Police even resorted to dressing up as sex workers to lure the murderer out. So just like what the reporter had done before, now police officers are doing it in their desperate attempts to figure out who the heck this guy is. Despite all the police efforts, though, the killer was still at large. Modern-day forensic teams say that there really isn't much else that the police could have done, other than to wait to see if the murderer made a mistake or hope that a police officer or someone just, like, happened to stumble upon the murder as it was being committed. Victims are usually killed by someone that they know, so it's much harder when there's no connection whatsoever. And even in the case of Elizabeth, when they had a witness— 
that doesn't do much good unless they are able to catch the guy so that the witness can then give them a confirmation. They needed clues and the killer wasn't leaving any. Luckily for the rest of October, there were no more murders. So the city breathed a sigh of relief. But as we know, that would be a mistake. On November 9th, the final and the most gruesome murder yet would be committed. That night, 25-year-old Mary Kelly was heard singing in her room. A little before 2 a.m., George Hutchison met her on Commercial Street. Mary asked him if she could borrow six pence, but George had no money on him. Mary Kelly continued down the street on her quest for a little bit of money. George saw a man tap her on her shoulder and the two spoke. Soon he heard laughter and Mary took the man's arm and they came back towards Hutchinson, back to Mary Kelly's apartment. George claims that the man glared at him on his way past. The two made their way into Mary's building. George was worried about Mary, so he decided to, to wait to see how long it took for her to come back out. He waited about 45 minutes, assumed everything must be fine, and then he left. Around 4 a.m., two of Mary's neighbors heard a soft cry of someone saying, Murder. But due to the carnival reactions of the murders, hearing someone say murder as a joke was so commonplace that the two didn't think anything of it. At 10.45, Mary Kelly's landlord sent his assistants to collect Mary's rent. Moments later, a pale-faced assistant returned. He said, Governor, I knocked on the door to no answer, so I looked in the window and I saw a lot of blood. The two rushed back over and came upon the horrific sight. On Mary Kelly's nightstand, oh, trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning, on Mary Kelly's nightstand were pieces of human flesh. Mary was in her bed completely unrecognizable as human. By 11.30 a.m., Inspector Abeline was there, but he didn't dare enter for almost two hours because he had heard from the London Financial District Manager that they didn't want anyone entering a scene until they could have the bloodhounds go in first. But he waited two hours and the bloodhounds never came, so he figured this is a waste of time and he went in. The door was locked, so they actually had to break open the door with a pickaxe. When they entered the room, they were able to see that Mary's throat had been slit, just like all the others. She had been disemboweled again, um, and her womb and kidneys had been removed. Her face had also endured mutilation. Um, it was missing. She was missing her nose, ears, eyebrows, and lips, and ooh, she had essentially been skinned post-mortem. The landlord told the papers, the sight that we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a demon than of a man. Shortly after, Charles Warren, the London Financial District Commissioner, resigned. He was like, heck no, I'm not dealing with this. I'm resigning. Goodbye. Police issued a pardon to anyone, anyone who may be an accomplice if they would simply give up the name of the killer. 7,000 people attended Mary Kelly's funeral. However, soon, interest in the murders dwindled after Mary Kelly's death. Plus, the murders seemed to end after her death. There were some similar murders in 1889, but these actually proved to be copycat kills. What happened to the killer? He would not have stopped voluntarily. Murderers like this do not just give up, especially after such a gruesome murder. They continue to escalate and perfect their demented craft. So 
Were there any suspects? Who were the suspects? I have narrowed it down to a list of nine, but I'll really only be focusing on who I believe to be the two most promising leads. Suspect number one is Montague Johnson Druitt. He was a lawyer. It is believed that during the time of the murders, Druitt was living with his cousin, who was a doctor. This cousin lived in the area where the murders were committed. One month before the murders began, Druitt's mother was actually committed to an insane asylum as she had gone insane. And Druitt feared that he was going mad too. In the criminal investigation reports, Druitt's family was quoted as saying that they would not be surprised if Druitt was if Druitt was the killer because they knew him to be sexually insane, which I think is synonymous to sexually deviant in like our vernacular of today. But what did that even really mean in the 1880s? Was it true deviance or was it just like an unusual to the time period fetish or interest? I mean, it was the 1880s. Like a lot of things were like, oh, I can't bear it. That are like totally fine. After the last murder, Druitt disappeared. Then he was found four weeks later. His body was found floating down the Thames River on December 2nd, 1888. Suspect number two is Michael Ostrog. Ostrog was a Russian doctor and a criminal. He had been committed for homicidal tendencies. Criminal investigator McNaughton notes that Ostrog could not provide strong alibis for his whereabouts during any of the murders, but unfortunately officers did not have strong enough evidence to hold him, so they had to let him go. Suspect number three, which is less of a suspect and more of a notion, there is a common belief amongst like conspiracy theorists that Jack the Ripper wasn't a Jack at all, but a Jill. Detective Aberlein was one who actually quite heavily believed this theory as well. All the police were looking for a man, but he believed that they should be looking for a woman. This might explain why the murderer was able to slip by with no suspicion. In fact, police may have even seen her and told her to hurry up and get inside where it's safe, never knowing that they might have just spoken to the killer herself. A midwife wouldn't have, would have significant medical knowledge, and blood on her clothing in the middle of the night would have raised zero suspicion. Perhaps she was a jilted woman or a lover scorned by a man who had left her for a sex worker? Who knows? Or maybe she just found sex worker, um, like their lives to be immoral. And so she was like kind of a vigilante of, of sorts. Suspect number four, Prince Albert. This is often referred to as the royal conspiracy and is often scoffed at, but I thought it would be good to include it anyway. Apparently, Prince Albert actually frequented the East End frequently, an activity that led to him contracting syphilis, which drove him to insanity. So I think it goes without saying that Prince Albert did a bit more than just frequent the area, if you know what I mean. Some people believe he even fathered a child with a sex worker and that Queen Victoria had begun a secret crusade to dispose of any sex worker who may have had any knowledge of this child under the guise of a serial killer. However, it's pretty well known that Queen Victoria desperately wanted this killer brought to justice, so I think that it's pretty unlikely. But similarly, we all know that royalty oftentimes believe themselves to be above the rules. (coughs) Prince Andrew. (coughs) Prince Andrew. Some 
think that Prince Albert went insane with syphilis and committed the murders himself. Conspiracy theorists believe he was never discovered because royal aides assisted in covering up his identity. Suspect number five is Walter Sickert, who was a famous artist, a painter in fact. Apparently Sickert was known to be obsessed with the murders and obsessed with whoever the murderer may be. Sickert did pay homage to the Ripper in several of his paintings, even naming one in particular, Jack the Ripper's Bedroom. I'll see if I can find it and I'll post it on the Instagram post at Mystery Still Unsolved. Friends wrote that Sickert enjoyed cosplaying as Jack the Ripper often, and I'm not talking Halloween. He would just like do it randomly throughout the year, and he really liked it. A paper analysis expert also claims, but let's take it with a grain of salt, people, that three of Sickert's letters and two of Jack the Ripper's letters came from a handmade, homemade batch of paper with only like 24 in existence. So, if we believe that this is true, what are the chances that the two would have had access to the same batch of 24 papers? I think it's more likely that Sickert was just obsessed with the crimes and perhaps he was behind the writing of the letters to stir up a buzz, but wasn't involved in the crime themselves. Suspect number six, Joseph Barnett. This suspect is particularly suspicious because he had lived with Mary Kelly, the final victim. Barnett had also lived in 10 different locations in East London, making him well-versed in the area. He was a fish porter, and it's common knowledge that he was in love with Mary Kelly. The day after Mary Kelly's death, Barnett referred to himself as Mary's husband in a quote for the newspaper, but in fact, the two had only been roommates. Barnett didn't like that Mary was a sex worker, and he did all that he could to make enough money so that she wouldn't have to work the streets. Some theorize that Barnett committed the first murder to sort of scare Kelly off of the streets, and it seemed to actually work for a time. However, Barnett lost his job, which inevitably made Kelly return to the streets so that she could make money. Their financial struggles often led to physical altercations. Mary Kelly often enjoyed drinking gin, and Barnett hated that. He found it abhorrently immoral for women to like drink alcohol. One night, Kelly brought home two of her sex worker friends to have a drink and Barnett went ballistic. He threw the bottle of gin out the window and started like having a huge verbal altercation with, with Mary Kelly. Barnett moved out after that and only 10 days later, Mary was found dead in her apartment. Although he was aware of the building and how to navigate getting in and out without being detected, and he was also aware of Mary's schedule, he was questioned by police and let go. Details suggest that Mary was killed in her sleep, and that this proves that the crime was not committed by someone that she had invited in. But we shouldn't forget that Kelly was friends with prostitutes, and this may have allowed Barnett to get close to these women. They may have even trusted Barnett due to his connection with Kelly, and then he may have attacked them in a blitz attack. One newspaper even claimed that to Barnett's closest friends, he was known as Jack. Barnett also matched the physical descriptions and behavioral profile of the killer, plus the murder of Mary Kelly was the most like gruesome. So were all the other kills just to get Mary Kelly to stay off the street? And then he, she wasn't doing that and he like took out all of his rage on her because she was like the catalyst. 
the murders did stop after Mary Kelly, too. If the killer was Barnett and the motive was to stop the woman he was in love with from working on the streets, he'd have no reason to kill anyone else now that the woman he loved was dead. I didn't read this anywhere, but it's something I thought of while reading about Barnett. It's entirely possible that Barnett may have become so enraged with Mary returning to the streets that he returned to her home after she was asleep and killed her in her sleep and then staged the scene to look as if the crime had been committed by Jack the Ripper to confuse investigators. I mean, we have to keep in mind that this is a huge shift in his ritual if we believe that this is Jack the Ripper. It's a huge shift in his ritual, killing someone within their home and while they're sleeping. It doesn't really fit the pattern. Sure, there are some things in the way that he killed her that are similar, but I'm sure that those things had probably been printed out in the paper. We have to know that there are a lot of things with Mary's death that are not similar to any of the other deaths as well. Suspect number seven is James Maybrick, a cotton merchant. His death coincided with the end of the murder spree. He died one year after the final murder, which I don't know, I don't think he could have gone that long the way that he was escalating. But anyway, Maybrick was upper class and lived in an estate in Liverpool. Some say that him being rich and living in a mansion discounts him as a suspect, but all the murders took place during the weekend. So some say that would have allowed him the financial flexibility to travel back and forth on the weekends. Also, the biggest piece of evidence is that a diary was found underneath the floorboards of his estate. In one of the pages, it says, I give my name that all may know me, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman reborn. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Also, the diary contained intimate details about the killings. The diary was tested and it supposedly matched the era of the killings. However, Mike Barrett, the man who found the diary, once admitted that the diary had been fabricated, but later recounted the statement. He claims that he lied that it was fake because his new wife was upset about all the publicity that they were getting. Apparently, like people were like swarming their house. Maybrick also had a pocket watch with the initials of all of the murder victims on the back of it engraved along with the phrase, I am Jack, J. Maybrick. My two most favored and likely suspects, in my personal opinion, are one that you may be familiar with and one that you may not. The first is Aaron Kosminski, a Polish barber. You may have heard of him last year as some DNA evidence claimed to have pinpointed him to the crimes. Aberlin says in a memoir he once wrote that they had the killer in their grasps and even had a witness confirm that he was their man, but the witness refused to testify in court. Without that testimony, they were not going to be able to hold Aaron Kosminski, so they had to let him go. It's also reported that Kosminski was a Jew and so was the witness, and the witness did not want to have the hanging of a man on his conscience, so that's another reason why he refused to testify. However, after Kosminski was released by police, Kosminski's family immediately had him committed to an insane asylum where he lived the rest of his days until he died of gangrene in 1919. 
1988, Zena Shine, a granddaughter of Aaron Kosminski's brother, had a knock at her door. When she opened it, there stood two British investigators. They said they had evidence that may prove that her great uncle was the murderer who had terrorized Whitechapel 100 years prior. But what was this piece of evidence that had led these detectives to Zena, and how could she possibly help? Well, in 2019, forensic scientists claimed that Jack the Ripper had been identified by DNA evidence that they had recovered from the bloodied apron that had been found after the death of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. The study claimed it took a sample of male DNA from the bloodied apron and compared it to Zena Shine and her brother. The DNA comparison showed that there was a very rare genetic mutation called 314.1c. Apparently less than 1% of the world's population has this genetic mutation, and this seemed to solidify that Aaron Kosminski was the killer. However, several weeks later, the lead geneticist called back and admitted that he had made a terrible clerical error. The mutation he had noticed was not 314.1c, but was in fact mutation 315.1c. And this mutation is shared by 99% of European descendants. So it doesn't really narrow anything down. Also, it's important to know about the whereabouts of the cloth before it was tested. The person who had it in their possession at the time was Russell Edwards. He was an author and had purchased the apron in 2007 at an auction. So who knows how many people have had their hands on it. Also, we have to remember the time. In 1888, I don't think they knew how important it was to protect and properly store valuable pieces of evidence. We have to remember that Kosminski was a person of interest at the time, and because of this, he had been brought in several times for questioning. During one of these interrogations, Aberlein writes in his journal that an investigator grabbed the piece of apron and slammed it on the table in order to see if it would elicit a reaction from Kosminski. Kosminski reportedly handled the piece of fabric at this time. So, even if Kosminski's DNA ended up being on the fabric, how would we know if it's because he is the murderer or if it's because he was allowed to handle this vital piece of evidence during his interrogation? Also, most revered scientists don't agree with the outcome of the DNA findings conducted in 2019 because the evidence needs to be subjected to peer review, and Russell Edwards refuses to release the results for a peer review, which makes me suspicious of Russell Edwards and what they really have. Okay, now on to the suspect I think is the most likely. After years of research, criminal profilers agree that the Whitechapel murderer or Jack the Ripper would have lived locally. He would have blended in. He would have had a good reason to be out and about so late at night and possibly covered in blood. He would have had a disrupted childhood, which doesn't really narrow things down in the 1880s. I think mostly everyone did. Um, and they also say that he probably would have been older, around 35 to 40, not 25 to 30, as eyewitnesses have reported. But it's obviously possible that he could have looked he could have been 35 to 40 years old but looked younger for his age. I want to see if you guys can guess who I'm talking about as I already told you about him in the retelling of the Jack the Ripper murders. He was actually found at the scene of one of the murders during Polly Nichols' investigation in fact. Yep, that's right. He was noted to be there right after the first murder. Can you guess who it is? 
think about it. Remember, John Neal, the police officer, said he found the body, but as we know, Robert Paul saw the body before the police did, but he had arrived on the scene as another man had been standing nearby it, supposedly finding it as well. Robert wanted to go to the police straight away, but the other man didn't. That man was Charles Allen Cross. Or was it? A slaughterman delivery driver. Why did this crucial witness attempt to sway Robert from immediately finding a police officer? We learned that when Robert and Charles left the scene, they did so together. They went in search of a police officer, or so Robert Paul thought. But when they finally found one, Charles Cross insisted he speak to the officer alone. We now know that he told Constable Miser that a woman's body had been found in an alleyway and the police officer had sent them to find another police officer and deliver the message as he was in need of some help. And we know that this is a lie. There was no policeman with Polly when Robert and Charles left her. This was perhaps a guise, a ruse to get the officer going on his way so that Charles and Robert would not be detained and investigated. It was happenstance that when Constable Miser went to where the body was, he found Constable Neal, which is why he didn't question Cross's story until much later. Because Miser was under the impression that Cross was simply delivering a message from a fellow officer, he did not detain the men and sent them on their merry way and quite possibly let the killer go. Charles identified himself as Charles Cross and said his address was 22 Doveton Street in Whitechapel. But no Charles Allen Cross lived at that address. However, there was a Charles Allen Leachmeyer listed as the head of household. But were they the same people? Most likely. Records show that Charles' mother had been married multiple times and Charles never knew who his real father was. One of his many stepfathers had the last name Cross. Leachmeyer claims he was never alone with the body, but a modern-day investigator traveled to London, and noticed a huge discrepancy. Leachmeyer claims he left his home at 3.30 and that he found Polly on his way to work. He said he was immediately joined by Robert Paul. However, this investigator went to where Charles would have lived at the time and made the walk over to where Polly was found, and guess what? It only takes seven minutes to get from Leachmeyer's home to the location where Polly was found, putting him there at 3.37 a.m. Robert Paul said he didn't even leave his home until 3.45, and he made a mental note of this because he was going to be late for work, which means he would not have gotten to Polly until 3.52, making Leachmeyer's version of events impossible and giving him plenty of time to be alone with Polly, and that's time unaccounted for. Taking into account Polly's injuries in the postmortem report, the death wouldn't have wouldn't have been very long. It actually would have only taken two to four minutes to complete because remember, she had not had anything removed. This fits within the nine-minute discrepancy of the time Charles Leachmeyer could have been with Polly before Robert Paul arrived. But why didn't Robert notice any blood? And how would there not have been any blood? Well, we must resort back to the postmortem report for the explanation. There was bruising around Polly's neck, that was not indicative of the slashing that she also endured. This indicated that she had been strangled prior to her death before any of the other things and like the mutilations had taken place. No blood pressure, 
means no arterial spray when the wounds are inflicted. This would make the killing actually surprisingly clean. It's believed that Robert may have interrupted Leechmeyer's plans. It was dark and it's possible that Leechmeyer did what he could to cover up his work when he saw Robert approaching. Remember that Charles claimed to cover up Polly's lower half to provide Polly with decency. But what if that was all just a cover-up so that Robert wouldn't notice Polly's wounds on her stomach? When Robert thinks she's alive, he wants to prop Polly up and, like, give her aid. But Leechmeyer insists that they don't and says he will not touch the body, which is weird. If she could be alive, why didn't Charles want to administer her any help? Well, maybe because he knew something Robert didn't know. He knew that if Polly had been moved, her throat would have become more noticeable and that would panic Robert. So he refuses to touch her, but suggests that they find an officer instead. But he also insists that they go together. Wouldn't it have made more sense for one person to leave and one person to stay with her, especially if they thought that she was alive? Why was Charles so insistent? When police find Polly, there is a pool of blood around her head, but when Robert had rushed to Polly's aid to check for a pulse, he sees no blood, and he doesn't get any blood on his hands or anywhere. This indicates that the wounds were fresh, and the blood had not had time to pool. With no one else in sight at the time of Robert coming upon Polly, this makes Charles Leechmeyer center stage as the prime person of interest. But as we know, being around one murder does not a murderer make. But there are four other murders, and Charles Leechmeyer can be connected to every single one of those, too. Leechmeyer's upbringing had been turbulent. He was born in East End and moved around several times, but always stayed within the area. His mother had always been a domineering force in his life. At the time of the murders, Leechmeyer was 39, married, and a father of 12. <laughs> Two months before the murders began, Leechmeyer had moved away from his mother, leaving his eldest to stay with her. Could this split from his mother and daughter have been the catalyst that propelled the start of these murders? Maybe. Wouldn't you know, Leechmeyer's route from his new home that he had just moved to, to his work, took him right through the route of the killer's killing grounds. All of the women found killed were along popular routes Leechmeyer would have taken to get to work and at approximately the same times he would have been passing through. Now, the double event was outside of the comfort zone in terms of not being on his way to work. However, Leechmeyer had been visiting his mother and daughter that very night. Their home was located very close to the location where Elizabeth found, was found. Also, as a child, Leechmeyer had lived very close to where Catherine Eddowes was found, and then in the center of these two locations, where Elizabeth was found and where Catherine was found, was the Leechmeyer's new home. Also, both of those killings took place on a Saturday night, which was Leechmeyer's only night off. But what about the fifth victim? Certainly, it would have been hard to go about unnoticed with all of that blood on him because we know Mary's murder was an absolute bloodbath. Well, this is where Leechmeyer's job would have come in handy. Leechmeyer delivered sections of freshly sectioned meat from the slaughterhouse to the butchers early every morning. It was a bloody job, but someone had to do it. The meat always had to be fresh due to there not really being any proper refrigeration at this time. He could have easily slid right underneath everyone's noses. All the murders triangulate between the three most important places in Leechmeyer's life, work, 
home family. If you take some stickers and you put it on his work, his home, and his family, all of the murders happen within that triangle. If he really ends up not being the killer, then he is the unluckiest man in the world and that he always seemed to be in the right place at the right time and he always seemed to be right behind whoever the killer was. A series of eerie coincidences, wouldn't you say? And that just doesn't add up because either he would have witnessed all five murders or he was a part of them. Charles Leachmeyer somehow evaded suspicions and survived into the 1920s. Leachmeyer lived to be 71, had grandchildren, and he even became a fairly wealthy man. He even made enough money to hire a photographer and have his picture taken in 1912. I'll post that picture up for you guys to take a look at. So, what do you guys make of this story? Do you think it was Charles Leachmeyer? Do you think it was another of the eight suspects? Who are you kind of leaning towards? What are your thoughts on Jack actually being a Jill? Wouldn't that be a wild spin to this wild tale? What do you guys make of the recent DNA evidence that came out in 2019? I'm not really buying it since Russell refuses to allow it to be peer-reviewed, but I want to hear your thoughts. What about the diary found underneath the floorboard in Maybrick's mansion? Do you think it's a fake let me know on the Instagram account at Mystery Still Unsolved. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Plus, I know this is a really popular case, so if you have any other theories, please tell me about them. I'm sure that we'd all love to hear about them, especially me. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>